Discipline is not inconsistent with love. It is the lack of discipline, in fact, that is inconsistent with love. And when the church refuses to deal with the sinning member, not only are they showing lack of love for that sinning member, but they're showing a lack of love for the rest of the church, and they're showing a lack of love for Christ. This is the Divine Truth Podcast, a ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. This podcast is for the purpose of teaching God's people through the verse-by-verse exposition live from the pulpit of Emmanuel Baptist Church. We pray that the Word of God richly blesses you as you hear it proclaimed. chapter number five tonight again and we're going to read our text once again and because of the length I'm not going to have I'm not going to have you stand uh, we're just going to read the the text once again and first uh, Corinthians chapter number five uh, beginning in verse number one it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication is, as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in the body and present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that had done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that, in, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us come Let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, with such a one know not to eat. For what what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, We ask you, Father, that you would reveal to us your truth tonight. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. As we began to look at this passage of Scripture last week, we began to look look at some facts about what the Scripture says about how to deal with sin in the church. And we started looking at the fact in our outline of a reported situation. A reported situation. And what is the reported situation that we saw last week? Verse 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication 
among you. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Now we said to you last week that, the, that at the time of the writing of the first epistle to the Corinthians, Corinth had a population of approximately 700,000 people. Now it's unlikely, although possible, but unlikely, that 700,000 people knew of the sin that was harboring, being harbored within this little local body there in Corinth. Paul's idea here is, is that the story about this sin is not only widespread, but is widespread in detail. He says, here is the reported situation. The reported situation is that there is fornication among you. And we saw last week that the word fornication is the Greek word pornia, which is where we get our English word pornography or pornographic, and it and is a word that entails all types of sexual sins, whether it be adultery, fornication, uh, incest, homosexuality, and even lesbianism, and even includes the sin of bestiality. And so inside of this one Greek word, pornia, is all of this sexual sin engulfed. But Paul lets us know where this particular sexual sin falls. And he says in verse 1 that, it, that a one should have his father's wife. He said, there is a report among your church folks that there is a boy that's a member of your church that's in an incestuous sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now, a lot of things that we could take that we don't know for exact, know for sure, but we can make a pretty good idea of the fact that the woman, because he's not calling for discipline with the woman, that the woman is probably not a member of this church. She's probably not even an unbeliever. We don't know that whether the woman and her, this boy's father are still married or not, or if this boy and his stepmother are actually living together as husband and wife. But whatever the case may be, Paul says the problem is, is that there is a report among you that there is a young fellow in your church that's having sex with his stepmother. And what does Paul say about that type of action? He says, such a sin. Even the ungodly people around you, Paul says, they don't even practice that. And, you know, and that should have pinged the, the Corinthians' heart, shouldn't it? And when he said that there are people among you that are not even Christians, that don't even follow the true God, they don't even do that. He says this is the reported situation. But then number two, we see not only a reported situation, but we see a regretful, a reported sin, but we see a regretful solution. We see a regretful solution. Look at verse 2. Look what Paul says. Shocked as he was, shocked as he was, no doubt, with the sin, Paul was even more shocked, folks, by the attitude of the Corinthians to the sinner. They had complacently accepted the situation and done nothing about it. When, folks, listen, they should have been grief-stricken. But I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 2 here about the attitude that they displayed, which is really a regretful solution to the problem. Here was their solution to the problem, verse 2. And ye are puffed up. That's amazing to me. It's amazing to me that a church could allow a young boy to be a member of their church 
all the while carrying on an incestuous relationship with his stepmother, a sexual relationship with anyone outside of the bonds of marriage, but a sexual relationship with his stepmother, and not only the church not do anything about it, but Paul says, not only are you silent about it, he says, but you're arrogant about it. He says, you're puffed up. You know, as we study the book of Corinthians, nothing seems to break through their pride in boasting. They were so self-satisfied and they were so self-confident that they either excused or rationalized the most wicked behavior in the congregation. Perhaps they looked at this incest as an expression of Christian liberty. Or... Perhaps they looked on their tolerance of this sin as an expression of Christian love. We don't know which. But whichever may be the case, their arrogance blinded them to the truth of God's standard. Perhaps they were like the people in chapter 4 that they believed that they could sin and get away with it. Back in chapter 3, we saw that that the believers there in Corinth thought that they possessed superior knowledge. But we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1 that knowledge puffeth up. Knowledge puffeth up. Knowledge by itself, without the wisdom to be able to use that knowledge, all that does is bring pride and arrogance. And perhaps they believed that they had a greater understanding on the subject than Paul did. We don't know why they were so puffed up. But Paul says your solution, your regretful solution to this reported sin is that you're puffed up. You're arrogant. John Calvin said, quote, they glorified in what affords so much occasion for humiliation. What they should have been humiliated about, they were proud about. And there's an amazing blindness for folks, an amazing blindness in what, in glorying in the midst of disgrace. What a, what a regretful solution. What a regretful solution to a sinful problem in the church to be arrogant about it. <laughs> what should have been their reaction? Verse 2. What does Paul say? You're arrogant, you're puffed up, but you have, and you have not rather what? Mourn. Should that not be for the Christian, for the church? Should that not be the response of all sin in our life? But particularly in this context, should that not be the reaction and the attitude of Christian people of sexual sin? Mourning? Not arrogance, not joking about it, but mourning. The word mourning, the word mourned is uh, pentheo, and it literally means to express sadness, to express immense sadness because of the results of a certain condition. And the circumstances by which they should have been sad is the sins that one of their own had committed. And oh, by the way, They're not innocent either. Their sin of apathy in the eyes of God, church, your sin of apathy about the sin is just as wicked in the eyes of God than the sin. 
Can I get an amen? Apathetic people about sin is just as sinful. We don't brush sin under the carpet. And we deal with sin in the church. And the circumstances by which they were under should have brought them shame. And it should not have been just the individual boy that was sinning, but the whole church should have mourned. Because Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. That's the attitude within the church. We rejoice together when there's moments to rejoice and we weep together when there's moments to weep. But what was their attitude? Arrogance. Pride. When they should have been mourning. They should mourn not only because it affects the church, but also because the perpetrator is an offender that seems to care nothing about the church. Do you understand that? When someone willfully and openly sins within the church, they show that they care very little about the church. Not only do they care, show that they care very little about their own spiritual condition before God, but that they care very little about the church. That is really the second part of why the church should mourn over the sins of its people. Because this sin not only affects the person. We looked at Achan last week in Joshua 7, right? And it wasn't just Achan that his one man's sin hurt. It was an entire nation. I mean, one person's sin affects the entire church. Because the sinning member shows no love, shows no regard for the Lord or the church. Because just as a family feels the effects and sufferings of the sinning father, so also the church contracts the stain of disgrace whenever any sin is perpetrated in it. Especially in the judgment, when, when especially is the judgment when the church, like the Corinthians, tolerate and even seem to celebrate with arrogance the stain of sin that's there. John Calvin also said, it is the duty of every church member to mourn over the faults of individual members as domestic calamities belong to the entire body. We need to understand, for folks, and many of you do, but we need to be reminded very often that the, the, the lifestyle as people that are members of Emmanuel Baptist Church, that the lifestyle you choose to keep has ramifications upon those people to whom you worship with. When you and I choose, if you and I choose to live in a lifestyle that is sinful openly, publicly, unrepentantly, when we choose to live in that type of a lifestyle, we show no regard for the church, we show no love for the church, we show no love or regard for the Lord, and we show no love and no regard for the fact that we have caused calamity upon the entire body. It's a serious matter. John MacArthur said, a church that does not mourn over sin, especially sins within its own fellowship, is on the edge of spiritual disaster. 
You want to see a church that's about ready to fall off the cliff, fall off the edge, and go into destruction, go into perdition? Oh, their doors may still be open, and they may still collect an offering, and they may still hear a sermon, but you want to see a church that's spiritually speaking, is about to go into a state of perdition? That's going to be a church that doesn't deal with sin in the local body amongst its members. Paul says, your solution... Your, your regretful solution to this reported sin is to be arrogant when you should be mourning? When the church and a people cease to be shocked over sin, we lose a strong defense against it. Alexander Pope wrote, a poet from many, many years ago, wrote, Vice is monster of so frightful mien." As to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet seen as all familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. That's usually the sequence, isn't it? That's usually the sequence. I had a man call me on the phone some time ago and confess to me some things that he had been involved in. And um, I think I handled it pretty well. I basically told him this. Well, you've trashed your family. You've trashed your church. And you've trashed your Lord by your actions. That's what he did. You said, Pastor, that sounds harsh. Well, that's what he did, right? And listen, if you are squeamish about calling sin that, then you're not calling sin what the Bible calls sin. The man repented and is still serving the Lord. We need to take this seriously. Not only when we come to the table of the Lord, but we need to take this seriously all the time. And their regretful solution is very regretful. If you're arrogant, You've got a sin in your church, verse 1, that is not even named among the Gentiles? You, unsaved people don't even have incestuous relationships? But yet you're allowing a boy in your church, who's and the, and the Greek tense, present tense there, gives us the indication that that sexual relationship is still going on? And you've got a boy in your church that's having that sexual sin still going on with the stepmother, and not only are you allowing him to stay in the church, but instead of mourning about it, you're proud about it, you're arrogant about it. What a regretful solution. And folks, listen. The church of Thyatira in many ways, if you remember the seven letters written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, the church of Thyatira in many ways was a model church. It says in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 19, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works and the last to be more than the first. But listen, church, they had one fatal flaw. Verse 20, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit pornia, sexual sin, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Because see, you remember, folks, from our past studies, that was part of the idol worship. Two things that always seem to make up idol worship, drunkenness and sex. 
Because in their perspective, you get in more in tune with the deities through drunkenness and sex. And so what they would do is they would come into their temples and they would get in a drunken stupor. They would eat meat offered to idols and then they would have sexual orgies, everybody having sex with everybody so that they could get in better tune with the deities, so they thought. Here's a church that Paul says had everything right about them. Paul says, John says, I know your works, rather. I know your love. I know your service. I know your faith. I know your patience or your endurance. He says, I know your works. But the problem is you're allowing someone in your church that is not only practicing but is perpetuating and permeating among your body sexual sin. Someone in the church claiming to speak for God was actually leading believers into immoral practices. And though this person was rebuked, this is a woman, because John calls her a prophetess, so this is a woman, and though she was rebuked, she refused to repent. And consequently, as a result, she and all who participated in her immorality became subject to God's severe, severe judgment. And that judgment, church, is to be a warning to all Christians and a reminder of the righteous standard for his people and of his knowing of our minds and hearts. Notice what John says, what Jesus says through John in verse 21. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that committed adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds, and I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he that searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. See, folks, God takes very seriously the purity of his church, and he commands his children to take it equally as serious. Whenever sin is not reported and then repented and cleansed, it just increases the spread of the infection. Even in Paul's second letter to them, he had the same concern in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 21, And lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanliness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. You know, the sad thing it seems about the Corinthians is they never repented of the sin spoken about in chapter 5. Because when Paul wrote his second letter, he had the same condemnation on them. When Christians and churches refuse to deal with sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And we're told in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, to grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Christians, we're not to tolerate sin within the church any more than you are to tolerate sin within your own life. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, before fornication and uncleanliness and all covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become the saints. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, Paul says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. It is the responsibility 
of all church members, not just the pastor, not just the elders, but it is the responsibility of the entire church to expose sinful practices within the fellowship. And so we see a reported sin. There's fornication among your body. Uh, not even fornication, which is not so much as named among the Gentiles. You've got a boy having sex with his mother, with his stepmother. And we told you last week, remember, that in the Old Testament law, the relationship between a boy and his stepmother was on equal plane as the relationship with a boy and his natural mother. Paul says, you've got a boy committing incest. And what's your solution to the problem is to be arrogant about it and not mourn. But number three, the revered situation. The revered situation. Um, the Corinthians' responsibility was clear. Just as the responsibility of every church is clear. And this is where the mourning should lead. Look down at verse 2, the latter part of verse 2. That he that had done this deed might be taken away from among you. What is Paul's, what is Paul's revered solution or situation to this problem, to this reported sin? Paul is clear that when a sinning member of the church refuses to repent of the blatant immorality, they should be what, church? Removed from the church, excommunicated from the church. This is what he means when he says there in verse 2 that he that had done this deed might be taken away from you. Now, folks, that may seem harsh. That may seem unloving. But if you read Ephesians 5, if you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, one of the things that you find that is God's number one priority is that the church may be presented before him pure. Paul says, my hope for you, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, round verse 2, I believe it is. Paul says, my prayer for you, my hope for you. In fact, Paul says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I've espoused you. I, I have engaged you to Christ, and I want to present you as a chaste or a pure virgin. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, I believe it is, he says that he may wash it by the water of the word, that he may cleanse it. God wants a pure church. And the only way to have a pure church, as we will see later in the chapter, is to remove the leaven. Because listen, church, those of you ladies who break, bake bread, you, don't, you know that it doesn't take a whole lot of leaven to, rise, to raise a lump of dough. And it doesn't take a whole lot of leaven, which in the Bible is a picture of sin. It doesn't take a whole lot of leaven to permeate the entire body. And so Paul says, get it out of there. And that church member or those church members that refuse to repent are to be excommunicated from the body because God has called us to purity, church. Jesus Christ, it just, just wasn't Paul. Jesus Christ set forth the basics method of church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, now beginning in verse 15, Jesus says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, Notice how Jesus says that. Now, I don't believe that that is a sin that has been committed against you personally. I believe that that's a sin committed to the entire church. But Paul, but Jesus Christ, assume, but Jesus Christ uh, points that as that person individually has been assaulted by that sin. And so any sin that comes into the church is a sin against each individual person in this church. When a person is a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church and they engage in open, unrepented, blatant sin, they are putting really a black eye on every member of this church. But most importantly, they're putting a black eye in the name of Christ. 
Jesus said, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, what should you do? Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Okay? You don't tell your neighbor. You don't tell your friend. You don't tell somebody else in the church because then that makes your sin equal to theirs. You go and tell him and him alone. If he hears you, meaning that if he repents, you gain thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, step two, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Because remember, we've told you many, many times that the, that the word, that the standards in Scripture of an of a eyewitness is what? Of a reliable eyewitness is two or three eyewitnesses. And so what, what Jesus says, if he won't hear you alone, then you take two or three with you so that they can verify with you that this is what transpired, this is what was said. But if he neglect to hear them, do what? Tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be as a heathen man and a publican. What were the heathen and the publican not allowed to do in Jesus' day? Go into the synagogue. They were unsynagogued people. And so the application is, the impression that Jesus gives here is that if they will not hear the church, you remove them from the fellowship of the church. I'm like you probably, church. I have heard most of my life when you talk about Matthew chapter 18 and you give those verses I've heard all my life. Well, that's not very loving. That's not very gracious. We must love them into repentance. And while that emotional sentiment would seem to be consistent with the very nature of love, nothing could be farther from the truth. Because discipline is not inconsistent with love. Okay? Discipline is not inconsistent with love. It is the lack of discipline, in fact, that is inconsistent with love. And when the church refuses to deal with the sinning member, not only are they showing lack of love for that sinning member, but they're showing a lack of love for the rest of the church, and they're showing a lack of love for Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, for the, Lord, the ones that the Lord loves, he chastens. He deals with the sin of your life if you belong to him. And the Bible says if, you don't, if you're not chastened because of your lifestyle, then that means that you're fatherless and you don't belong to him. But if you belong to Christ, then he chastens you and I when you sin. And that's what the church does. If the church, if the Corinthians did not remove the immoral man from the church, the entire Christian community there would be placed under a divine condemnation. I had a local, I had a pastor tell me some time ago or ask me some time ago, uh, he had a situation in his church and I was, he asked my opinion and, uh, you know, I'm always ready with that. So he asked my opinion and so I gave him some scripture. I didn't give him my opinion. I gave him the word of God and, and he said, um, he said, well, do you think you really think that God's going to judge the whole church if we don't take care of this? I said, read Joshua 7. I said, yes. 
If you don't deal with this sin in your church, yes, God will judge and put under divine condemnation the whole church. Folks, this isn't for the faint of heart. And that's why when we talk about church membership, we also talk about accountability to each other. Because we, because if you, or because if I live in, the, if I, if I choose to live in a sin, it affects you. If you choose to live in sin, it affects me and everybody else in this church, and it needs to be taken care of. The Church of Jesus Christ, folks, must be characterized by holiness, and must remove the blatant and unrepentant sinner by excommunicating him or her. But notice what Paul says in verse 3. He says, for I verily have what? Paul says, I've judged already. In Paul's mind, there was only one thing to do. There's only one thing to do. He had already reached the conclusion. You know, Paul was not giving them an order of what they had to do. Paul was not the pastor there. He was not giving them an order of what they had to do. But if they want to remain pure and in the fellowship and harmony with God, this is what they must do. And he wants the church to join him in recognizing the seriousness of this. And then not only to recognize the seriousness of it, folks, but then to take appropriate action. Of all Paul's words about being there in the spirit, even though he says, I'm absent, it's as if Paul was saying, here's what I would do if I were there. If I were with you guys, here's what I would do. And that is what we see in the first part of uh, verse 3 and 4. He says, says, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When a local church acts in Jesus' name, they must do what is accordance to his word. If we're going to gather here in the name of Christ, then we must do those things that are in accordance with the word of God and with the power, he says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word power is a Greek word dunamis and it speaks about authority. I want you to notice the great authority that God left, that Jesus Christ left to the church. Real quick, in Matthew chapter 18, here's the authority that Jesus Christ left to the local church. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Have you ever had somebody quote that verse to you? It says, well, brother, we're going to have a wonderful time of fellowship here because the Bible says where two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst of them. Have you really read that in context? Because context there is church discipline. Not three people getting together to hear a sermon, but the context is church discipline. So when you try to apply it to getting together to preach a sermon, that's out of context. That's out of context. Never is the church more in harmony with heaven and operating in perfect accord with the Lord than they are when they're dealing with sin to maintain purity. Here's what Paul says needs to be done. Look at verse 5. This is very important. Look at verse 5. This is the word of God, right, church? To deliver such an one unto Satan 
Why? For the destruction of the flesh. Paul says, if I were there, this is what I would do. I've already judged. I already know what you should do. But if I was there, I'm not there. But here's what I would do if I were there. Here's how I would lead you to go about it. You don't need to be arrogant. You don't need to be proud about this. You need to remove that person from you and to deliver them unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now to the world, this and to even some believers perhaps, this sounds even more harsh and unloving. However, it is no more harsh and unloving than to the one who perpetrates sin on the church to begin with. If you're going to bring sin into this local body and we're going to deal with that sin, how is that less loving than you bringing sin into this local body? Don't give us two definitions of love and then judge the church by your definition of love. But it's also clear in Scripture that we cannot and should not ever attempt to improve on what the Scripture says. When you and I attempt to improve on what the Scripture says, you and I are in trouble indeed. And folks, I'll be honest with you, I don't always like everything that the Scripture says. But we can't improve on it. Satan is the ruler of the world. And turning a believer over to Satan, therefore thrusts the believer back into the world on his own, apart from the care and support of Christian fellowship. And that person is forfeited because the very refusal, and I had to clarify something with the person last week, that we need to understand that there are that there are steps that are taken. That's why we went to Matthew 18. There are steps that are to be taken in this excommunication. It's not you sin one time, buddy, you're gone. There are steps to be taken. There are opportunities to be given for repentance. But when that person refuses to repent, that person, he or she, has forfeited their right to participate in the church of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ intends on keeping the church pure at all costs. The word deliver there in verse 5, notice that with me, is our paradidomai, and it, it's a strong term. It speaks about a judicial act of sentencing. Uh, it, it speaks about handing someone over uh, for punishment. And the sentence of this blatant, unrepentant believer is that they're handed over to Satan. It's a serious stuff. Paul did that, didn't he? There were two men, at least at one point, there were two men in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. Their names were Hymenaeus and Alexander. He delivered them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Same Greek word. He handed them, these two men over to be punished by Satan until they learn not to blaspheme. But lest we sound too harsh, the delivering to Satan is not purposeless. The delivering over to Satan is not unloving. It has a loving purpose. Look at verse 5 again. For the destruction of the flesh. Because folks, listen, any believer is not going to want to live a life of carnality. Any believer is not going to want to continue in a life of being in the flesh. And so what the church is ordered to do is to give that person over to Satan, take them out of the church so that the so that the flesh would be destroyed. In fact, the word destroyed there is uh, plethros, and it means to be, to be destroyed to the point of death. 
It means to cause the complete destruction or ruin of something. And the only way, and here's where the sinning brother is, to, to bring about repentance is to completely destroy the flesh. Maybe you used to hear people say that God is going to give you so much of your sin that you're sick of your sin. God's going to fill you so much up with what you're doing that you're going to be sick of doing it. And that's sort of what this is. But it's a total, it's a total destruction of your flesh. And to hand someone over to Satan is akin to the prescriptions given by Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 18. And if he neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Believers are safe in the hand of God, from which no one, not even Satan, can snatch them. Simon Chris Mocker in his commentary on 1 Corinthians said, quote, but, if a sinning, but if a sinner is delivered to the prince of the world, he faces destruction. He no longer enjoys the protection which a caring Christian community provides when adrift and deprived of support. He will come to his senses and repent. In other words, church, the point of excommunication is to bring them back in. The point of excommunication is not to kick them out and leave them out. The point is to send them out unprotected given over to, the, to Satan, Paul says, for the destruction of the flesh in order to bring them back in. What about those who continue in rebellion and never come back to the Lord? What about those? What about those who, who sin, who, 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 act for, who act like a Christian for a while and then get tied up in some type of public, blatant, unrepentant sin? They're excommunicated from the church and they never come back. And that does happen. That does happen. And the actions taken by the church, are the actions taken by the church proven to be too harsh and place that believer under, dis, un, under total despair? Not at all. Not at all. And the problem is, and this is the reason why people think this way, because we've laid too broad of a path for salvation. The church has laid much too broad of a path for salvation. But the answer to why those who have been excommunicated because of sin never come back, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they, if they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that it may be made manifest that they were not all of us. God allows Satan to attack and gradually weaken the person's physical body. And this is not a sudden demise, but a slow process of physical decline. And it is during church that time that the sinner receives ample time to reflect on his condition and repent. Verse 5, that the, verse five, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And of course, spirit there does not refer to the Holy Spirit, but refers to the spirit of man. By judgment and repentance, it proves that the man truly belonged to God and can therefore truly be said to be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The point is that if a true believer goes through punishment over unrepentant sin, and the purpose is to cause the repentance and therefore show that the Spirit belongs to God. All the while, 
all the while maintaining purity in the church. The church has a responsibility, folks. We have a responsibility to maintain purity in the church. First, listen to me very clearly. The church, you and I, should never tolerate public, unrepentant sin. We should never tolerate it. And we should never allow it to remain in the congregation. Now we're talking about members. We're talking about members. We're talking about people that are members of this local body. We should never tolerate public unrepentance. We shouldn't tolerate, if you call yourself a Christian, you shouldn't tolerate sin in your own life. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not belittling the sin in your personal life because you're not a member of a church. But these, but these principles that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 5 was to a local church, how a local church should handle it. And the church, the Emmanuel Baptist Church, should never tolerate public unrepentant sin in the congregation much less, as the Corinthians did, find it to be a badge of honor. Tolerance of sin is never a badge of honor of Christian love and acceptance. We never accept, folks, what God abhors. If God abhors it, we should abhor it. And we should not tolerate it. If God doesn't tolerate it, we should not tolerate it. Second, the church must deal with the unrepentant sinner in a serious manner. And the reason the church is so worldly is because we have allowed unrepentant sin to remain without dealing with it. Told you last week of a local pa- of a church pastor I knew in a local church here. He's not the pastor now, but he was at one time the pastor of a local church here. And he allowed Two people, not married, living together in a sexual relationship, not only to be baptized, but to join his church. We can echo the words of the Apostle Paul in verse 1 of chapter 5. Such a sin is not even named among the Gentiles, and it should not be named among God's people. God's people should never tolerate sin. My prayer is that Emmanuel Baptist Church will always be a church that is gracious and loving, but always deals with unrepentant sin. Always deals with unrepentant sin. And as we come to the table of the Lord tonight, folks, this is a time where you and I need to ask the Spirit of God to reflect on our lives and to make sure that there's nothing in our lives that would keep us back from being able to participate in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Because we know from Corinthians that because there were those people that partook of the Lord's table unworthily, Paul says some of them are sick and some of them have died because they, because they partook with known unrepentant sin in their life. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the Word of God has been a spiritual blessing to your soul. For more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Our Lord's Day services are 10 and 11 a.m. as well as 6.30 p.m. We also have a Wednesday service at 6.30 p.m. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that the message of God's divine truth would always go from the cross, through the church, to the world, 
until Christ come. God bless you.